one of the things that I truly enjoy, um, and I'm not sure even the right way to say it, but it has to do with science, physics, things like that. Now, I'm not an expert by any means. I'm really not. There are times when I stand up here and I share things from Scripture, and then I explain things uh, from a natural perspective, using various aspects of physics and so forth, and it might sound like I know what I'm talking about. When the truth of the matter is, I look these things up. You know, I get curious, I start doing research. So it's not like I know them already. I do the research and dig them out. Years ago, I read books. Of, uh, well, they were books either written by or written about uh, secular physicists, such as um, Isaac Asimov. Now, he wrote a lot of um, science fiction books. To my knowledge, he didn't believe in God. I mean, he acknowledged there was something going on, but he didn't say it's God, at least not to my knowledge. But uh, he had a really unique way of expressing various aspects of physics. And uh, anyway... I've always found those things extremely intriguing. I find Einstein's concepts very interesting. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but just the other day, and, and uh, I don't know how to express it in the scientific terms, I don't know how they get these telescopes to look so far into outer space, but these researchers, you know, their job, I guess, is just to constantly be studying outer space. Well, they saw light coming from the backside of a black hole, and they said that's not supposed to happen. Well, the fact that it was happening confirmed another aspect of Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, his theory of relativity is way over 100 years old. He wrote it when he was like 27. Uh, now, my opinion is he was one of the greatest in history physicists because they're still proving aspect. You know, for a long time they don't believe some of the things he wrote, and then all of a sudden they say, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> I guess he was right. Well, anyway, uh, there are references to scientific, to, man, I don't, I don't know how to say this, there are references in Scripture to things about science that don't apply to us. You say, what in the world? Okay, you're going to understand here. They apply, but they don't apply. But they have an impact on us and how we live. Now, we're going to read this in Scripture. I'm going to show you several passages of Scripture to really get into this. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And for the most part, here at the beginning, these scriptures are going to be in order as they appear in the Bible. Not in order relative to importance or what have you, just to make it easier to turn from one book to the other. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and look in verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom of which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Now what that literally means is, before creation. 
He ordained that there would be information that Paul refers to as the wisdom of God in a mystery. God ordained, or He designated, that this particular information would be given to humanity at a particular point in what we call time. Now, he says in verse 10 that God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now what he's talking about here in this passage, it has to do with spiritual truth or kingdom truth. So, here's God in heaven. And before he creates the universe and everything in it, he says, okay, there's, there's this information that they need to know even though they don't exist yet, but I know they exist. They just don't exist in their existence, but they exist to me. <laughs> You're like, what? So I have this knowledge I want them to have. However, they're not going to be able to obtain this knowledge until spiritually they are compatible with me because this knowledge is relative to my spiritual existence, not specifically their natural existence. I hope that makes sense. Because honestly, I'm kind of struggling a little bit to come up with the right way to express this. Now look over in Ephesians chapter 3. No, no, no. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, this can be used, what we just read, it can be used to support the concept of predestination. Meaning, God has already determined that these people over here will be born again, whether they want to or not. And they will spend eternity with me. And then these people over here, they will not be born again, even if they want to be born again. I have predestined them to go to hell. Okay, that's ludicrous. But what this is saying is, if you look in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the pleasure of his will. Now, I'll teach on this, I've taught on this before, I'll teach on it again later on, not tonight. But in essence what it's saying, if you leave all of this, in con this whole chapter and beyond, if you leave it in context, what it's saying is this. In fact, there's references to it over in Romans chapter 8, don't turn there. What it's saying is, God knows who's going to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, because he knows that, his will is for them to be his child, just like Jesus was his son. You understand that? And we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, when God created Adam 
in perfection. And Adam is referred to, in, when you read the genealogy of Jesus, it goes all the way back to that Adam, and he's referred to as the Son of God. Now, it was God's plan for humans to exist in his likeness and his image. That's what God said back there in Genesis chapter 1. Well, we know what happened, and Adam messed that up. But that was still God's plan, for us to exist in his image and in his likeness. So then, what God is saying here is, through Jesus Christ, what I had predetermined for human existence and declared it all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, is now made available to those of you who make a decision to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. So when we get born again, spiritually speaking, that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and God's original intention. So this is what he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 1. However, it says that according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was God's plan. I mean, he, he knew who would, would not accept Jesus as Savior. He knew it before the foundation of the world. And so he said, those who do, they will become my offspring, my spiritual offspring. Now look over in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And let's pick this up in verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us, and hath called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us, in Christ Jesus before the world began. So once again what we see is God's plan for us existed before the foundation of the world. And what that means is he already knew Genesis 3 was going to happen. Otherwise, you wouldn't need a Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Are you following me? So he says, look, his purpose was already established before the foundation of the world, and that purpose included us being able to become one with Christ Jesus by virtue of our faith in him after he completed his work here on earth. So God is looking ahead through the ages, before the foundation of the world. You say, well, you know, how long before the foundation of the world? I don't know. I mean, as we measure it, it could have been thousands of years. It could have been 10,000 years. I don't know. Maybe we'll never fully understand that. But now look over in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Now, that's really interesting because what it means is God made a promise to humanity before humanity existed in humanity's existence. You follow that? Before the world began. So God, he looked at humanity and he said, I'm making a promise to you. Okay, now let's, let's, let's pretend, all right? So here's God and he's up in heaven and, and he's thinking about all this and what he's going to do. And you've know, you got angels all over the place. And then all of a sudden God promises. He, he opens his mouth and he says, I promise you, humanity, that I will make salvation available through Christ Jesus. And he, he starts speaking this promise. And the angels are up there and they're looking around like, who is he talking to? <laughs> There's nobody here but us angels. What is humanity? What are humans? What are people? It's just him, you know, God. Because back then, now, now don't cast any stones at me, okay? Jesus wasn't the Son until He came to earth. Say, wait a minute, now hold on. Well, now wait a second, hold on. He's referred to as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, in Scripture, for our benefit. But until He was born, He wasn't a Son. Do you understand that? He existed. You say, well, that's right, He was always the Son. How'd that happen? If he's one with God, and God has always existed, then how did God have an offspring that always existed before coming into existence? <laughs> ah, your head's starting to swim, isn't it? Alright? Now, here's God, he's making this promise. Before the world began. And now, if he literally spoke that to where the angels could hear it, you know the angels are wondering, what is coming down? What is he? There was no universe. Do you understand that? There was no universe at this time. There were no planets. There were no stars. There was no moon. There was no sun. There was no earth. No mountains. No trees. No water. Nothing existed. And so God is is speaking about something that has not happened yet. <laughs> he is speaking before Genesis 1. Do you get this? Well, if you don't, just trust me. He's promising this before the world began. Before Genesis 1. Alright, look over in 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Chapter 1. And let's pick it up in verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. See that? So this whole plan 
for him to shed blood as a lamb without blemish, without spot. Do you realize? All right, here's another one that that might you know get people want to throw things at me. Did you know Jesus was not our Christ until he came to earth as Messiah? Do you understand that? In heaven, he wasn't Christ. He was not. Who to whom would he be the Christ? To whom would he be the Messiah? See, these are things a lot of people, you know, we just never, we just assume he's always been the Messiah. No, he hasn't always been the Messiah. He was designated to be the Messiah. Now, I'm speaking in our terms. He was designated to be the Messiah, but until he came to, until there were humans to whom he could be a Messiah, he wasn't Messiah. You follow this? All right, anyway. It says, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So, now let's use this imagery. God sat down. Okay. Here's one that I'm not going to dwell on. What was Jesus' name before he was born on earth? You're like, I don't know. what. Okay. The angel said you'll name him Jesus. Did God call him Jesus before he came to earth? Now you're thinking. (laughs) See, we make a lot of assumptions about Scripture and about God and his existence and how he operates. And a lot of those assumptions keep us from receiving from him. Now you're going to understand that by the time this is over. So before the foundation of the world, he was ordained. Now, at some point, this whole concept of Christ, Messiah, Savior, Lamb of God, born of a virgin, I mean, that concept existed some, at some point in God's history. But I don't know how to explain that. But it did. Now, if we continue in this, look in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha and Omega, you know what that means? Beginning and the end, right? I am the beginning and I am the end. Okay, the beginning and the end of what? Our existence. Because where God lives in eternity, there's no beginning and there's no ending. So the concept of Alpha and Omega is relative to our existence, not eternity. You follow this. He says, I am Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the ending. Well, we know eternity has no ending. And it has no beginning. So he's talking about how he relates to our existence. And he says, uh, and in verse 9 it says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, 
unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So he's identified himself in here twice as Alpha and Omega, beginning and the ending. You cannot be the beginning unless you existed prior to the beginning. Follow that? So he had to exist prior to what is the beginning. Okay, well, what is the beginning? It's what we know as creation, Genesis chapter 1. Now look in Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So here we see another reference to Jesus' death being a part of God's plan prior to the foundation of the universe. So God created everything, and if we use the the terminology Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they knew the plan. And so the moment that God began creating in Genesis chapter 1, they knew. They knew, okay, here's how it's going to play out. And the day is going to come when Jesus will leave up here and he will go down there to earth, be born as a baby. But he's going to lay aside, and we've taught on that, I've taught on this before, he's going to lay aside all of his deity aspects so he can fully relate to humanity and be the last Adam. And so that's exactly what happened. Jesus wasn't born knowing everything. The Bible makes it clear that he was taught and he understood and he learned things. Well, if we look in, um, in, in this eighth verse, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So God knew that the death of Jesus was going to be critical for people, humans, to have the opportunity to be born again or to have God's life imparted unto them. Now if you look in Revelation 21, in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful." And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now this is the third time that we've read this here tonight where he refers to himself this way. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters 
and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone and is the second death. So here again we see he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And what we're seeing here is a reference to the end. He says, here's the way it's going to play out very, very shortly. The end. And then if you go over to Revelation 22, verse 12. He says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And I mean, this is right here at the last. This is it. Okay, now, this is really amazing because repeatedly in these verses we have read, God is identifying that we cannot relate to how He exists because I'm the beginning and the end. I was there before or I existed before Genesis chapter 1. How in the world do we relate to that? I mean, Christians get in heated arguments over Genesis chapter 1. So how in the world can we relate to an existence prior to Genesis chapter 1? Then he talks about everything that we've seen in here, how that he had a plan that existed before Genesis chapter 1. He had already made a promise to us before Genesis chapter 1. Then he talks about a continuation of existence that goes beyond what we currently know and understand. Now we won't get into the new heaven and the new earth and so forth, but you know that's in here, that's a part of this. So we sit and we think about all this, it's like, okay, I don't get it. Well, no, we don't. But it, it, it's, that's the way it is. Now, now, look back over in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Now, in uh, verse, pick it up in verse 16. God's talking here about Abraham and says, Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed not to that only which is of the law, meaning the Jews, but to that also which is the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Well, now see, you can't do that how can I say this? Okay. It doesn't take faith for God to do this. Because from His perspective, He sees it existing before it exists. Meaning, God's not up in heaven thinking, man, i got to confess this. I gotta, I got to, I, I, if I don't confess this, it will never happen. Well, I say, Jim Martin will be born. I say, Jim Martin will be born. I say, do you understand what I'm getting at? Okay, he speaks of things as though they already exist, even though to us, they don't exist. 
And we think, what? How can you do that? That's why he says here, he calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abraham believed in God based on what God promised him. God said, Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count them? Abraham, they ain't no way. And God says, okay, that's what your offspring is going to be like. Then he says, Abraham, look at the, the grains of sand. Can you count them? He says, there ain't no way. And God says, that's what your offspring is going to be like. So God is telling him what he, God, sees as an existence before it comes into existence to Abraham. In fact, it never did come into existence to Abraham. He died before he had that kind of offspring. You understand that, right? So now... God's trying to communicate with Abraham from his perspective and how he exists. And here's Abraham. God is infinite. Abraham is finite. And God is trying to get an infinite concept to a finite human. And so he knows Abraham can't handle this the way I understand it and see it, so I'm just going to, Abraham, stars, Abraham, grains, sand, okay? Just pretend. <laughs> You're offspring. That's how it's going to work. So Abraham said, oh, okay, well, in that case, I believe you. I, I will believe you. Even though I have no clue, I believe you. And God said, okay, I will be able to work with that because your belief in how I operate, whether you understand it or not, it is that belief which enables me to work in you, to you, and through you to bring about the manifestation of what I know needs to manifest. You follow this? You might have to listen to this a second time. I don't know. But now look in. Um, now look here again. He says, "Who calleth those things which be not?" As though they were. Leave your finger here in Romans. We're coming back in just a moment. But turn to Isaiah 46. Isaiah chapter 46. And what we're going to see is a variation on the theme of what we just read in Romans chapter 4. Isaiah 46. And just pick it up in verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So, God is he's revealing to us, I can talk about things, that don't exist as far as you're concerned, but to me they already exist because I'm not bound by your existence. <laughs> well, see, in our minds, it's like, I don't, I just, I'm sorry, I do not understand that. Well, of course we don't. We're not God. But now look in, um, look back over in Romans. In Romans chapter 9. Now, what's happened... In, um, I said Romans chapter 9. Make it Acts chapter 9. I'm sorry. Acts chapter 9. 
Now, what's happened here in Acts chapter 9, you know, Paul, well, at the time he was called Saul, and he is out chasing down Christians because he believes it is a terrible, uh, like a cult that is misleading Jews and, and taking them away from the true God, so on and so forth. Well, we know what happened. The bright light from heaven. And, and in fact, you know, Elaine taught about this on Sunday. The bright light from heaven and, and you know, Saul's knocked off his horse. And he gets wise really quick. He says, who art thou, Lord? <laughs> and then, man, you talk about a shock. He says, I'm Jesus. He says, no, nah, you can't be. I mean, <laughs> I saw you on the cross. No, Saul, re- remember the stories? That the tomb was empty? Remember that? Suddenly, I'll tell you right now, at that moment, Saul is remembering all of what he heard. He's remembering this. And then he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I am in big trouble. Because now remember, at this moment, Saul is thinking of God from a Law of Moses perspective. And he suddenly realizes he has, in essence, been blaspheming God. And what's the penalty for that? You die. So, in his mind, I have no doubt, he was thinking, this is the day I die. It started with the bright light, and he's going to kill me any minute, and I deserve it. Well, God didn't kill him. Instead, he said, now go on into Damascus, and uh, you know I'm going to send somebody there to help you out. Well, then God, speak, pick it up in, in verse 10. You know, Saul had been in this house for three days, hadn't eaten or had anything to drink. But then in verse 10, it says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said, or said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And it's seen in a vision. Now stop right here. <laughs> Here's Ananias. Everything's going fine. He obviously is someone God trusts. And God says, first, you know, he says, Ananias, and Ananias, you know, th- wouldn't you kind of be excited if you had an encounter like this with the Lord? You're like, oh, wow, the Lord, this is cool. Here I am, Lord, here I am. And the Lord said, arise. And go into the street, which is called straight. So Ananias, he's thinking, okay, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. And inquire in the house of Judas. Yeah, I know where he lives. I can do that. For one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> and, and then he, God explains this to him. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man, how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Now, what's interesting is that he didn't pull a Moses and say, send somebody else. You know, he's talking to God about, it's not like he's saying, I won't go. He wants to make sure that he and God are talking about the same Saul. All right? (laughs) But, now look at this. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now let that sink in. 
Because what this means is, Ananias, he goes in, prays, Saul receives his sight. At some point, Saul, who became Paul, had an encounter with God. And God, verse 16, began to show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. This happened before the persecution began. So it may have happened before we get to verse 20. But somehow God and, and Saul or Paul, they had this encounter and God said, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. Now, I don't know if he gave him a vision. I mean, he did say, I'll show him, but that can mean I'll explain to him. He told him ahead of time. He's, it's almost like he was sitting down with Paul and said, now, I want you to know that I've chosen you to represent me to the Gentiles and to kings and to you know, all these people. Now, I know what you're going to do. The same zeal that you had for defending the law, you're going to do that for me. That's why I'm picking you. However, I want you to know, there are going to be some bad things done to you. You are going to be shipwrecked. You are going to be beaten. You are going to be, you are going to be, and you know what? I, I don't know in how much detail that God revealed unto him. But in my imagination, he's sitting there thinking, hey, after what I've done to you and those who believed in you, I can handle anything anybody dishes out. I did it unto others. I can handle it when they do it unto me. You understand that? But God let him know ahead of time. So, God knew all the details of Paul's life before the shining light. Before Paul was born. And God, He's been waiting for Paul to come into this moment and reveal all this. And God knew what the result was going to be, and we read the result in the rest of Scripture. Now look over in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Just to help you find it, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And, and I want you to, I'm going to make sure you get there, because I want you to see this with your own eyes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. We read this and it's like, okay, yeah, well, um, okay, that's a nice thing. But do you realize God spoke this from His position of eternal existence? He wasn't speaking this as some kind of a, well, you know what? You just better hope it all works out. How many times have we said things like that? Well, I just hope it all works out. And yet God says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Which means He knows what the end is going to be. And He says the end will be better than the beginning. Well, 
I want to share something with you. Um, many of you know who Tim Stemple is. Uh, he's been associated with Pastor Dave Roberson for years and years. And in a, I don't remember when he said this, but in a particular service, when Tim was ministering, he said, when God talks to you, He talks to you from the position outside of time. And I've never forgotten that. Because when that, that is this verse right here. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. God, how can you say that? Because I'm speaking to you from my dimension, not yours. We only have two dimensions of existence. There is the, um, the created universe and the creator's eternity. That's it. There are only two dimensions. Now, I know you've got people, you know, physicists and all these folks want to argue about, well, there are several dimensions. You know, we, we only start out with height, depth, and width. But it goes much further than that. Okay, we're not going to debate that. But I'm right. There are only two dimensions because height, depth, width, and all these other dimensions that physicists want to talk about, all of that exists where? In the created universe. They don't exist in the Creator's eternity. There, there's a whole different set of rules on the other side. So we have essentially two dimensions, the created universe, which is everything, and then the Creator's eternity. Now, if you look in, um, look in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and jump to verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Back in Ecclesiastes, we read, better is to be the end of a thing than the beginning, and the patient in spirit more than those who have spiritual pride. The patient in spirit, in spirit that's the long-suffering. He says right here, don't be weary in well-doing. That's the patient in spirit. In due season, you're going to reap if you faint not. What God is saying in this verse, in this passage, is that I already know the end result. Therefore, I'm telling you, if you will sow to the Spirit, then out of the Spirit, you will reap the things of life. Now, ultimately, we know eternal life, you know, when our existence here in this world ends, we're with Him forever. But, what He's doing here, He is speaking from His perspective of being able to look down upon human existence and He can see everything. See, He already knows what you're going to do after the service and you don't know. Think of it like this. You know, you're standing in, in, in your house and you're thinking, um, you know, I think, I think I'm going to go on vacation. I think I'm going to go on vacation, you know, back in February. You say, oh, I think I'm going to go on vacation this year. And, and you feel a tap on your shoulder. And you turn around, and it's God. 
you say, whoa, God, hey, how you doing? You know, good to see you today. Um, would you like some coffee? And uh, God says, no, I just want to give you something. And he hands you a package, and on the package is a note. And it says, this package is not to leave this house, and you do not open it until June 29th. So you say, oh, well, okay. Now this is February. All right, so you take it and you set it aside. You say, well, well, thank you, God. You know, looking forward to June 29th. Well, anyway, the days pass, the weeks pass, you know, the months pass, and you make a decision, I'm going on vacation in June. So you go on vacation in June. And you get back home on June 29th. And you walk in the house, and it's like, oh, I forgot about that package. God said that, that I could open it on June 29th. Oh, wow, isn't that amazing? Um, it's the day we get back from vacation, as though God didn't know. So you open the package, and it's, it's a book. And the title of the book is Our Vacation. <laughs> it's like, what? And you open it, and it is a minute-by-minute description of your entire vacation. Everything you did, everything you said, everything you saw, everything you ate, every, every, everything... And you look at it and think, wow, how'd he know? <laughs> so, <laughs> you and I both know that's exactly one of the things you would think. How did he know? He's God. Back in February, he gave you a book he already had printed. Which, and he couldn't have printed that book unless he already knew every detail of your vacation. Our minds cannot grasp this. And so, we struggle trying to accept the fact that we can trust God in every situation because He already knows the ending and He can describe it to you. Well, why doesn't He? Because He knows how goofy we are and we'll try to manipulate things. We will try to make things happen and just mess it all up. And see, you, you, you can't fool God. You can, <laughs> you, you can tell Him, well, I'm thinking about doing this. And He says, well, okay, now, if you do that, here's what's going to happen. Ah, uh, well, then I think I'll do this over here. He says, well, if you do that over there, then here's what's going to happen. Well, uh, I think here's the third option. God says, we can play this game all day long. But I can tell you the outcome of everything you choose. But I already know what you're going to choose. And even though I already know what you're going to choose and that outcome, I can still tell you the outcome of what you aren't going to choose. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. How? I am God. Get it through your head. I'm God. And I know all of these things. See, when God gives us an instruction, He already sees the task completed according to our obedience. And He already knows if we're going to obey or not. So He gives us an instruction, and He knows what we're going to do. Look over in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And just go to verse 14. 
And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So now God is telling you right here, if you ask according to my will, then that gives me the opportunity to move to bring about answers. If you don't ask according to my will, I will not be moving to bring about answers. So he's already telling us how the whole prayer thing works. We have to ask according to his will. And somebody might ask, well, the thing is, if you already, in fact, Jesus even told us, God knows what you have need of before you ask. Well, if you already knows what I have need of before I ask, and, uh, well, I mean, why even ask? Because he has given us the authority in this created existence. And it's out of that authority we speak. And when we speak according to his will, that opens the door for him to begin to move on our behalf. So when we ask according to his will, then we know we can expect an answer. The problem is this. We want to essentially, and we don't, it's like we don't mean to do this, but it's like we want to equate God with us. And how we know, and how we do, and how we choose, and how we operate, and so on and so forth. But you, you can't do that. This is why, for, for so many of us, it really is difficult to trust God because we don't comprehend how He can know everything. But if we get it settled in us that He knows everything, beginning and end, if we get that settled in us, then we can obey Him and do what He says, even though at the beginning of the instruction, it looks like it is impossible. It looks like it can't be done. It looks like it's for sure failure. But He's already said, I, I speak to you from my position of knowing beginning and end. And so therefore, I tell you that the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Because I'm speaking from outside the realm of your existence. And I'm not bound by your time. I already know everything that's going to happen. Now here's, here's kind of a different way to look at this. Because of Adam's sin, humanity is so separated from God. We don't know how to function in a kingdom manner in this world. See, Adam was never supposed to die. He's supposed to still be here. The world was never, the whole, the universe was never supposed to be corrupted. There was never supposed to be sickness and injury and wars and all that kind of, it, it was never supposed to be like that. But because of what Adam did, we now have all of those things. And so we just kind of accept, this is the way it is. Well, this is the way it's supposed to be. No, it's not. But the way things operate in this natural world, this natural universe, not just the way humans interact with each other in a terrible way, but also the very fact that all of creation... Everything in the universe is corrupted. 
that has an impact on how we analyze the way God does things. Because we feel bound by what goes on in this world and all the corruption. So therefore, we, we tend to impart that being bound concept onto God. And God is saying, I don't even live there. <laughs> how can you do this? I'm not bound by your time. I'm not bound by your corruption. Just, you know, consider it like this. Let's just say that this room represents the universe. Well, see, when we walk outside this building, we can look up at the sky and it's like, wow, it just goes on and on and on forever. Even though it doesn't, I mean, there are boundaries to this universe. The Bible says so. But the way we see it, you know, it, it goes on forever and ever. Okay, God lives out there, but we're in here. And there are boundaries. And there are, you know, we have air conditioning going in here right now. Because if we didn't, <laughs> you'd all be hot, sweaty, and stinky. We have the ceiling fans on for the same purpose. To prevent those obnoxious odors, or at least to try. But see, there's no air conditioning where God lives. There are no furnaces. You get this? He is totally separate from our existence. That's where we struggle. Now see, this is why... Prayer, fasting, worship, and the Word. Meditating, reading, quoting, you know, and so forth, the Word. This is why they are so critically needful, because they serve to help reprogram our soul to flow with our new nature and God. Now, the more that happens, is it becomes easier to trust God in every situation. So if God says, I want you to go and do this, then you already know I'm going to go and I'm going to do that because God's not sending me to not do something. He's sending me to do something. Think of the Apostle Paul. God says, I want you to go over to Macedonia. I want you to go and minister. Because remember, Paul had that vision of the man that said, come, minister to us. And in he said, oh, I perceive we're supposed to go and we're supposed to be ministering to these people over there that we're going to see. So he goes, and what happens? They beat him. They beat him silly and lock him up in prison. But yet, he, he's, he's in prison, chained up. And uh, he just starts praising God. Worshiping God. Why? Because he knew God didn't send him to Macedonia, to leave him beaten in prison. He knew he was going to get out because God sent him there to minister to people. You follow what I'm saying? Therefore, he knew, well, you guys can beat me and you can lock me up, but I know I'm not going to stay here and I know you're not going to be able to kill me because God sent me here to do this over there, to minister to people in this city, and I haven't done that yet, so therefore I will be out of here. Thank you, Jesus. Praise your name, Lord. And sure enough, we know what happened. You know, the earth shook. Everybody's chains were loosed. Everybody's prison doors were open. Paul comes out. He ministers. And man, people get saved, filled with the Holy Ghost all over the place. See, that's the confidence he had because Paul came to the place of understanding God knows the beginning from the end. Therefore, I can trust Him even if at the beginning I get beaten and thrown in prison 
the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And that's exactly what happened with him. That's where we have to live. We have to come to the place of accepting the fact that God is not going to tell you to do something stupid. He's not going to set you up for failure just so He and the angels can laugh at you. (laughs) When He tells you to do something, it's because He has a planned outcome. And it is going to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you right now, I'm firmly convinced there are a lot of Christians over the years now, the last 2,000 years, who have been martyrs who weren't supposed to be martyrs. But they did for God rather than obeying God. You follow what I mean? God, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach to these heathen people and these, these pagan people living in the jungles. and I'm going to go reach the world for you, Jesus. And God may be up in heaven saying, I'd rather you not go there because if you do, you're going to end up here a lot sooner. Well, how many times has God's heart you know, been broken because he watches his children did something he never told them to do, but they did it for him. Well, there is honor in that aspect of it. I did it for you. And then when they're standing before him, it's like, God, I don't understand. I'm 26 years old. And they killed me. I mean, I had a lot to do for you. God says, yeah, you did. But you didn't listen to me. You, you listened to your desire to serve me. I need you to listen to me so that I can, under, that I can help you understand what you should really desire. Well, see, that's where the prayer, fasting, worship, and the Word comes in. Had Adam not sinned, none of this would be an issue. None of it. Absolutely none of it. Our minds cannot comprehend how God can exist never having had a beginning. I don't get that. I mean, seriously, if I lay around and I just start thinking about that, Man, that's weird. I mean, my brain, it just goes goofy. But yet, that's the way it is. Okay, I know God has always existed, but what did He do before He existed? (laughs) No, He existed. Okay, yeah, but who made Him exist? Nobody. He's always existed. Yeah, but, but, okay, there we go, trying to humanize God. We don't mean to. That's where our comprehension, I mean, it it hits the proverbial brick wall. We, by faith, have to accept God already knows what's going to happen five minutes from now, and I don't. He already knows my thoughts, my feelings, my desires. He already knows all of that. He knows. But He's got a plan. And it's my responsibility to keep pressing into Him to come to the place of truly, by faith, accepting He does know and He knows best and believing that I can be obedient to anything because the end of a thing is going to be better than the beginning. And I am going to be the patient in spirit, that long-suffering person to where I will endure whatever so that I can reach the end of the thing that God has desired. So guys, listen. Be encouraged by this. Even though our minds don't understand these concepts. Even though people like Einstein will never be able to explain it. We still serve a God 
that knows it all. <laughs> Praise His name. Hallelujah. 